Praise the Lord. Acts chapter 13 and verse number 13. Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. God, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray, God, that you would help me tonight. Anoint our ears, touch this congregation. Lord, I pray that you would touch all of our classes, our children's classes, our grow classes, our juniors and youth classes. And God, I pray that you would touch this session here in the sanctuary tonight. I ask you, Lord, to do a work of your spirit. Speak to us by your word in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. amen. God bless you. You can be seated. This verse from Acts seems to be a fairly benign verse in the grand course of the book of Acts and the advancement of the gospel. With so many amazing, powerful stories happening in the book of Acts, this verse seems to be very little as far as an impact on the church and on the ministry. This verse, however, is a very critical crossroads that will eventually cause shockwaves in the early church. There's a little bit of geographical housekeeping that the author is relating to the reader to advance the story of the book of Acts. Luke calls this particular group of traveling preachers, I think he used the term, quote, Paul and his company. What he means by Paul and his company is actually most likely the greatest evangelistic team that there's ever been. It's Paul, the great missionary, and his best friend and traveling partner, Barnabas. These two men blazed a trail across the ancient Middle East into Asia Minor and into Southern Europe. These two men took with them a group of younger ministers, different ones at different times, but always several of them to train them in the work of the Lord. And so the young men could learn how to do the evangelistic work and also they could be an assistance to the elder ministers. This group had worked in the city of Paphos in this particular city, a man by the name of Sergius Paulus, a Roman sent by the emperor to be the overseer of this part of Asia Minor, called for Barnabas and Paul specifically. And as they were on their way to talk to this political leader about the gospel, there was a sorcerer that got in their way and tried to stop them. And Paul prayed and told the man that he was going to be cast blind for a season. And when the man became blind, this Roman governor, Sergius, believed the gospel and obeyed the word of God. A great move of God, a great revival spark that happened in this city. But Paul 
desired from then to go to a place called Perga. Perga was a major population center. In this part of the world, it was one of the largest cities, and it was so because there were major roads that went in every direction that, that came together at this place. From Perga, it was the road to Galatia and Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and Colossae and Ephesus and Troas. All could be accessed from this city. So this city, Perga, was a very important city to Paul because from here he could launch the ministry into all these other areas, these cities, to from where he would eventually write epistles. So this large city was important for Paul. He had assembled his team of helpers and ministers specifically for the purpose of going to this major population center and to preach the gospel to these men and women in this city. And so Paul, in, in this particular passage in Acts, Luke, he gives that, he gives that little geographical lesson that Paul and his company loose from Paphos, they come to Perga and Pamphylia. And then it says, and John departing from them returned to Jerusalem. In the King James Version, that doesn't sound very dramatic, does it? Anybody, anybody here? It's just, it's like just, you know, you just text somebody, hey, Brother Carson went to Lafayette to see friends. That's about what it says, isn't it? That's what it sounds like. You know, Bishop and Sister Wilson went to California. All it says in the King James Version is John departing from them returned to Jerusalem. Doesn't seem very dramatic, does it? That one sentence is the beginning of something that absolutely rocked the early church. John departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Seems totally innocuous. Appears to be just another side note on the trip. However, in the original Greek, Luke paints a very different picture. Luke chooses a Greek verb. And I, I, I'm going to spell it the way it was phonetically spelled in the Greek dictionary. A-P-O-C-H-O-W-R-A-E-S-A-S. If you think you can say it better than apocoreasis, <laughs> come on up and be my guest. The Greek word that Luke used literally means to be deserted or to desert. You put that word back in that statement and it says John deserted them and returned to Jerusalem. That's a whole different feel there than when it just said John departing from them went to Jerusalem. It's a whole different feel now, isn't it, when it says that John deserted them and went to Jerusalem. This John that's being spoken of in this passage of Scripture, he primarily goes by the term in the New Testament, John Mark. He's sometimes called Marcus or just Mark. This man, John Mark, is relatively obscure as far as mentions in the Bible, but he's very prominent in the early church. 
Marcus was the son of a wealthy widow named Mary. It was at this Mary's house where the church gathered for prayer in Jerusalem while Peter was in prison in Acts 12. When Peter was in prison, James, you know, the Bible said James, they had, that Herod had, had cut off his head. And seeing that it pleased the Jews, he arrested Peter also, hoping that, that after Passover he would be able to, to assassinate Peter as well. But prayer was made of the church of God. Remember that? That prayer meeting was in the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark. So the, the house that this boy grew up in was a meeting place for the early church in Jerusalem. And so it's this same John Mark that the Bible said that when they were going to Perga, that John Mark deserted them and went back to Jerusalem. Not only was John Mark the son of this wealthy widow named, Barry, named Mary, not Barry, Mary. That's modern society, not biblical society. This wealthy widow named Mary, he was the cousin of Barnabas, Paul's best friend and fellow missionary. So John Mark is the nephew of Barnabas, I'm sorry, the cousin of Barnabas and the son of this wealthy widow, Mary, whose house was the meeting point for the church of Jerusalem. Paul had been the great persecutor of the church, breathing out threatenings and slaughters. And the rumor was passed around that Paul had been converted to Christianity. None of the other apostles, no one else in the church wanted to have anything to do with Paul. They didn't want to run the risk of maybe he's just faking it so he can arrest us and put us in prison as well. But Barnabas decided if, if, if there's just the slightest chance that Paul may be ready to turn his life to God, I'm going to go find him and I'm going to see what happened. And so in Acts 11:25 it says, Then departed Barnabas to Tarsus for to seek Saul. Just a simple little verse, but what a powerful verse. If there's a chance that Saul might possibly want to obey the gospel, even if it puts me at risk of my life, this man, this man that's breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the church, this man that's throwing Christians in prisons and helping to execute some of the leaders, if there's just the slightest chance that he could find God, I'm willing to put my life at risk to go find him. That's what Barnabas did for Paul. Barnabas laid it all on the line and went to Paul's hometown trying to find him just to see if maybe, and indeed it had happened, Paul had obeyed the gospel. And because Barnabas had gone so far out of his way to reach for Paul, they became best friends and traveled the world together. They planted churches all over Asia Minor. They preached the gospel, established ministries, did the work of God, baptized people, prayed people through the Holy Ghost, prayed for miracles and healings and signs and wonders. There, was, there were no more prominent ministerial teams in the entire New Testament church as there was Paul and Barnabas. When you said Paul and Barnabas, you were saying the highest echelon of leaders in the early church. There was no one 
that rose to the prominence of Paul and Barnabas. And this is the friendship that started in Antioch. And so, because Paul and Barnabas were traveling, Barnabas wants to take his nephew with them. And the nephew goes with them. And they get as far as Perga. And the Bible said, John, departing, deserting them, returned to Jerusalem. Acts 13 and 13. The Bible isn't really clear what it was that caused John Mark or Marcus to just go home. I've read, I've read sources. I've got, I've got over 160 commentaries on Acts in my office. I didn't read them all, but I read enough of them to see that there's a whole lot of different opinions. One thought that maybe he was homesick. One said that he was worried about his mother being a widow and home alone. Some speculated that he left over a doctrinal dispute with Paul. Others think that he had maybe fallen to some kind of sin and had to go home to kind of get himself right. All of that's conjecture. The Bible never says. We don't know why. No one really knows why he left. But what we do know is that when he left, it made Paul really mad. It angered him. To the point that when Timothy wrote the story that Paul gave him, he used the word deserted. He deserted us and went back to Jerusalem. Two full years. Everybody say two years. Two full years later, Paul and Barnabas were getting ready to go on another trip. And they're trying to get their team together. And they're trying to say, who do we want to take with us on this trip? And in Acts 15 and 37 through 39, and Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. Two years later, Barnabas wants to give him another chance. He, he, he deserted us two years ago, but let's give him another chance. But Paul, verse 38, but Paul thought not good to take him with them who departed. Everybody say departed who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. Barnabas says, let's take John Mark, my, my cousin, with me. Paul says, no. He, now he uses the word who departed. That word departed in the original Greek is the word where we get the term apostate from or to fall away from. It means to revolt, to desert, to depart, to stand off. To withdraw from, to fall away, to become faithless, to flee. Paul is using strong terms to say, he let us down one time. We're not taking him this time. He deserted us two years ago. We're not giving him another chance. We had it all worked out. We were in a big meeting. We needed him in Perga. It was a big if a big city and we needed his help and he deserted us when we needed him the most and we're not taking him now. Two years later, Paul is still just as angry as he was two years ago. We're not going to take him. He departed from them. 
He departed from us at Pamphylia. He was an apostate. That's what the word means, apostate. He fell away. Paul considered, apparently considered it basically a sin for him to sign up to do a work and then throw in the towel and leave. Paul's not having it. Paul, he left us in Perga and we're not taking him with us now. Now look at the next verse, verse 39. Acts 15, 39. And the contention was so sharp between them that they departed asunder, one from the other. So Barnabas took Mark and sailed unto Cyprus. That, that word asunder, you know, when people get married, they tell them, let no man, what's, what's the terminology? Tear asunder or pull asunder. It feels like being pulled asunder to some people, not me. over there and winked so I don't get myself in trouble. <laughs> but the same terms used for divorce, to tear apart. The Bible said that the contention between them. Man, I'd like to think that the halo around Paul's head and the halo around Barnabas's head, that they're so holy and so righteous and so godly and so full of the Holy Ghost and so full of the Spirit that they never fight or have contention or argue with anybody. But that's not what the Bible you and, us have, you and I have says, is it? It said they, their contention, their argument with each other was so sharp between them that they basically got a ministerial divorce. After traveling the world together, just think of all the peril they had been in. Go into cities where people want to kill them for preaching the gospel, but they preach. And just as they're about to get taken, they get taken outside of the city and they escape. And their lives on the line. You know, you want to know how to get close to somebody? You'll either love them or hate them. Travel with them. That's a fact. Amen. That's good preaching right there. You, you because something happens when people travel together. Marshall and I, we just got back from Alaska on Saturday. And ever since then, we've had people that didn't go on that trip that's been hanging out with us. And we're telling stories that no one else around us have that they know. We're talking about a guy that would not shut up. At, at, not, not Marshall. Some guy in the airport, 3.30 in the morning, there's a lady laying on the chair. She's trying to sleep, and this guy won't quit talking to her. It, sat, it, it sounded like he had marshmallows. Remember that game at youth parties where you'd stuff marshmallows in your mouth and try to talk? It's like he had 15 marshmallows in his mouth. And this poor lady's laying there just looking up at him, and he won't stop. He starts out talking about the restaurant he ate in the night before, and then I'm listening, and he's giving her a recipe about wrapping something in bacon. I'm like, dear, give the man a sedative. <laughs> but we laugh at that story. He's laughing right now at the story because we travel together. That's our, something happens when people travel together. The shared experiences bring them together. These two men... 
for years had traveled the world in peril, life on the line. Not only that, but watching God do great things. And years later, they tell about the miracles and the revivals and what God had done and how God raised somebody up. And because he raised them up, a great revival. And they have all these stories. But now at this point, they get so mad at each other that after all that experience, they tear their lives apart from each other. They departed asunder one from the other, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus. Paul and Barnabas, best friends, because of this huge argument they have. They split. The greatest missionary team of all time, most likely, split over an argument over John Mark. Thousands of miles, thousands of conversions, church services, revivals, battles fought together in the spirit. They separate on the issue if I should take John Mark or not. You have a deserter, John Mark, and you have Paul the deserted. Over two years has gone by and Paul's still so mad about being deserted that he doesn't want to take the deserter on another trip. And so Barnabas and John Mark go their way and Paul and Silas go another way. Paul remains at the forefront of the New Testament, but the one that brought him out of the shadows and brought him to the church, Barnabas, kind of fades into the background. Now John Mark, there's a stigma on John Mark. Everybody knows that he's the reason that Paul and Barnabas' team broke up. He, everybody, I mean, there's no more, if there's a Christian celebrity, Paul's the celebrity. And everybody wants to know what's going on with Paul. And now people know that Paul and Barnabas aren't traveling together. And the reason is because John Mark. John Mark is now a failure. The one that gave up, the one that quit, the one that go home. He's the deserter. He has this stigma on himself that he is the wedge that separated the great ministry of Paul and Barnabas. He's the one that caused the trouble that split that ministry. He was the center. He was at the very center of the storm that separated. And so now he carries that mark for his entire life. He's the cause of the breaking up of Paul and Barnabas' Barnabas's ministry. He carries the black mark. He's been blacklisted by Paul. He's a failure. He's not trusted. He's useless to the Apostle Paul. I'm trying to imagine how Marcus must have felt to know that it was him that was the reason for Paul and Barnabas to not go together anymore and work for God. You have the deserter and you have the deserted. So when you study preaching at seminary, they teach you something called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a fancy word for interpretation of scripture. It's the preacher's job to interpret the scripture to the church the way that God wants the scripture to be interpreted, not to make up what you want it to say, but what it actually says. And so I've taken 23 minutes and 19 seconds to lay out the historical setting. I put it in context of its time and place. 
I tried to properly align the characters of the story so you know what happened in their interactions so you could understand the issues related to the text. But I have one more job tonight. And my one more job is to make this story from 2,000 years ago matter to your life in 2022. That's the hardest job of all. You have Paul the deserted and John Mark the deserter. Can I tell you that most of us at some point or another have been a deserter or the deserted? We've either been the one that let somebody down or we've been the one that was let down. We've either been hurt or we've been somebody that hurt someone else. Probably all of us have been in both roles at one point or another, haven't we? We've caused somebody to have pain and we've had people cause us to have pain. We've had times when we didn't live up to what we were called to do. Times when people put confidence in us and we failed to meet that confidence. People that were called to do something and we abandoned our post before we got it done. I'm preaching to Christian people tonight who have let people down and have been let down. I'm talking about real life tonight. I'm talking about real issues in real life, in real relationships. We all have had the part of John Mark where we didn't quite live up to the standard that maybe we should have lived up to. You're not going to say amen now because you don't want to look guilty, right? That's all right, I know. We've also been the one on the high horse that got offended and got hurt and held on to it. I don't like to think of Paul being so bitter. But Brother Carson, it was two full years later that after the initial event, it was two full years later that Paul is still so mad that he's willing to lose his best friend over it. I don't like to think of my Bible heroes being that much like me. Am I preaching to anybody? Paul felt completely justified holding on to his anger. Two years later, he thinks it's worth losing my best friend over. If I never talk, there's no record in the Bible that they ever spoke again for the rest of their lives. There's nothing in the Bible. Now, they may have. They may have bumped into each other at general conference. You know how it is. Probably at a restaurant somewhere after church at a conference. But there's no record in the Bible that they ever spoke to each other again for the rest of their lives from this event. I don't like to think of Paul being that angry two years later over something. I'd like to think that he obeyed the Bible verse that said, let not the sun go down on your wrath. Two years of sons went down. And he still has enough wrath to give up his best friend for it. We got to be careful 
how much we justify ourselves in our anger. Whether we're right or not. Paul was right to be frustrated with John Mark. But he didn't have the right to hold on to it forever. I'm going to go on. I'm going to go on. We've been in both sides, haven't we? John Mark should have sucked it up and done his job. Life's hard. Suck it up, buttercup. Do what you're supposed to do. Go home and see mama later. You came on this trip, they're counting on you. Do what they're... Right? I'm not relieving either side of, of guilt here. What I'm saying is, that's the kind of stuff that happens in real life. The deserter and the deserted. Let me go on. Somebody say praise the Lord. I'm talking to some people who have made mistakes and done things you're not proud of. And I'm talking to people that are harboring things that you should have let go. Nothing stops revival more than division and interpersonal relationships. It broke the revival team of Paul and Barnabas apart. Nothing stops revival more than discord and disunity. You can be on the mountaintop one day and get in a conflict the next and you forget all about your mountaintop. Paul and, Bar Paul and Barnabas had just converted a Roman governmental official. And then the next day they're deserted by John Mark. They, you completely lose the joy of your victory when you have conflict in relationship. I'm not preaching to anybody, just me. They have this argument and they split up. 11 years. Everybody say 11 years. 11 years goes by. Now we're 13 years from the time that John Mark left them. 11 years from the time that they split up. There's no news about Barnabas, no news about Marcus. The Bible has turned its attention squarely to the ministry of Paul. The rest of the New Testament is primarily the story of his travels, his teaching, his training, his churches he founded. It's all the story of Paul. Barnabas is gone, John Mark's gone. Now it's 11 years later and Paul is in a Roman prison. He begins to write a letter to the church at Colossus. Colossians chapter number 4 and verse number 10. Everybody say 11 years later. Paul writes, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you. And Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, touching whom you receive commandments, if he come unto you, receive him. What you see inside of those parentheses is Paul's way of telling people, touching whom you've received commandments. He said, this is the guy I talked to you about. This is the guy I instructed you about. If he comes to you, kick him out. Lynch him. No, if he comes to you, receive him. Woo, Jesus. 
He says, look, I've heard there's a chance that John Mark might be coming to visit you. I don't know if he is or if he isn't, but if he does, receive him. That word receive in the original Greek means accept. Whew, hallelujah. Jesus. Amen. Brother Larry, run up here if you don't mind. He didn't. He really ran. Here's what it says. Here's what it means. Receive him. Accept him. Take him by the hand. That man that I was willing to lose my best friend over 11 years ago. If he comes to you, take him by the hand. Take hold of him. Grant him access. Don't refuse. This I'm reading directly from the dictionary. Don't refuse friendship. Give him hospitality. Feed him. Take care of him. Receive him into one's family. Embrace him. Make him your own. Do not reject him. Eleven years goes by. Where eleven years before he said, nope, I'll lose my best friend before I take one more step with that guy. But now he's saying, we don't have time to carry those kind of crutches anymore. I wasted years of my life being mad at him. I wasted years. I lost my best friend over this. And it's just not worth it. If he comes, make him feel like family. If he comes, wrap your arms around him. If he comes, take him by the hand and let him know that he's accepted. Can I tell you, there's a lot of people out there that they would love to come back, but they're afraid that people that they've hurt or burned bridges with will not want them back. What we need to do is say, come on back home. Life is too short to carry these kind of grudges forever and ever and ever. I get around people, and sometimes it's been years, but they can't keep from talking about it. But Paul said, look, if Marcus comes, if he comes, receive him. Now, why does he have to specify it? Why does Paul, now this is, this is a little bit of conjecture, but I think it's based on solid logic. Why does Paul feel like he has to tell them about, I commanded you to receive him. He says concerning the commandment, receive him. Why does he feel like he has to command the church to receive him? Because he's the one that said he's no good. We can't trust him. We can't, we can't rely on him. Look what he did all the way back at Perga. We, he had spent so much time destroying John Mark's reputation that now he feels responsible to say we've got to do something about him. If he comes, don't let him get out without giving him a hug. Don't hold his past mistakes against him. Don't treat him like an outcast like I did 11 years ago. Don't treat him like an enemy like I did 11 years ago when I lost my best friend because I was so righteous in my position that I failed to understand the value of the human being I was dealing with. 
Don't let this mark him forever. If he comes to you, receive him. I'm telling you, the devil would like for you to think that everyone is against you forever. That no one wants you around anymore. That it's over and you'll never get back. But Paul had time now to think it through and to get himself like he needed to be. And he says, look, receive him. I'm not only preaching to the one that made a terrible error in judgment, but I'm also preaching to the one that's held it against somebody for years. Let's go to one or two more passages of Scripture. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, Restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. You guys want to know the truth? What I'm asking you to do by the scripture tonight is one of the hardest things you'll do in your entire life. Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. You know what I try to do when some of our young people come into the office and they want to talk to me about stuff, things they've done. Some of our young adults come in and they're carrying this. I look at them across that desk and I try to think, how would I want another pastor to deal with them if they were my child? What would I want a pastor to tell them if it was Ellie or Kate? I'm not talking about excusing mistakes. I'm just saying, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. In verse number two, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. This, this word burdens, there's two words in the Greek, and I'm, I'm winding down. There's two words in the Greek New Testament that are translated burdens. One of them is the word fortion, and it means a manageable weight. A manageable weight. It's the word that Jesus used when he said, my burden is light. You can handle this. Galatians 6 and 2, Paul uses the term bare which is excessive or extreme weight. It's an extreme weight that cannot be carried alone. And so Paul says, when someone's overtaken in a fault, restore them with the spirit of meekness and bear one another's burdens. Carry the weight that they can't carry by themselves. And when you do that, you fulfill the law of Christ. Get under the load and carry it with them. John 13 and 34, new commandment I have given, I give unto you that you, that you love one another as I have loved you. 
Well, how did Jesus love me? Well, let's see. When I was against him, he was for me. When I let him down, he picked me up. When I failed him, he did not fail me. My in-laws are here. I'm glad they're here. They've been a big help. So you all know me as an evangelist coming around starting in 1991. You know me as a youth pastor coming on staff in 94. You've known me as a pastor since 2004. They knew me BC before Christ. They knew me when my mom and dad quit going to church. And him and Dale Hansen and Blaine King drove the vans on Tuesday and Thursday night and Sunday morning and Sunday night. They took turns. I know they didn't want to. Picked me and my ignorant brother up and took us to church where we caused havoc from time to time. We toilet papered their yard one night, hid and watched them clean it up. When they turned the lights out, we did it again so we could watch them clean it up again. And that was the stuff I'm willing to talk about. But you know what? They still brought that van the next service. You never know what's in somebody. And if you give up on them, you will never know what's in them. One more passage. 2 Timothy chapter number 4. I promise this is the last. Now we're 13 more years down the road. All right, you with me on the math? John Mark forsakes at Perga. Two years go by and Paul and Barnabas separate over it. Eleven years go by and Paul says, if Marcus comes, so now that's 13 years. So now 13 more years goes by. 26 years later from the original event. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4 and 6, for, now, for I am now ready to be offered. The time of my departure is at hand. You know what he's saying? I'm getting ready to die. They're getting ready to execute me. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And I don't know what you feel out there, but I feel the Holy Ghost just touch me. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. Go with me to verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Everyone else has left me. I'm all alone. I'm dying. Only Luke is here. 
take Mark and bring it to me. For he is profitable unto me for the ministry. Isn't it amazing that one of the last thoughts that Paul had before his execution was bring me that boy that deserted me 26 years ago. He's profitable. I thought he was washed up. I thought he was no good. I thought he was a waste of my time. I thought he didn't deserve my mercy. But now I realize there was so much more in him than what I thought. And now I'm getting ready to die. If you'll do me just one favor, bring Mark back to me. For he's profitable. I need him. Can I tell you that you need some of the people you write off a lot more than you think you do? And when it gets down to it, they may be the only ones standing by your side in the end. If you want somebody to help you when you hurt, get somebody who's been hurt. They understand they're profitable. God, I pray, Lord Jesus, I don't know who, I don't know who I'm ministering this word to tonight. I don't know how far out and wide that it might spread. But God, I've all, I've been a deserter and I've been deserted. I've been offended and I've been an offender. I've been wronged and I've been wrong. God, I don't want my revival to stop because I can't manage the relationships in my life, my friendships, people that I harbor ill will towards or bitterness towards. I can't, I don't want that to stop what you want to do. God, I pray, Lord Jesus, that you let this word find good ground. I pray, God, that you help it somehow minister in this congregation under the roof tonight and wherever it may go. God, because there's profitable ministries that we need to have restored to our fellowship. Can you help me pray? Oh God, you feel what I feel right now? And I feel like the light of the God's word has shined into my heart and mind. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. Thank you, God, for letting us see such, a, such an up-close look at how imperfect some of your greatest vessels were. And God, if you can use them with their imperfections, then God, I believe you can use us with our imperfections. Help us to give ourselves grace and to give grace to others. Help us to be a restorer of people. Help us to receive them when they come. In Jesus' name.
In Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You can be dismissed in Jesus' name.